Drinking aloe vera daily is a great way to help your digestion and naturally balance your stomach acidity. Yes, you heard that right. You should drink your aloe. Our wonderful partners, Lily of the Desert, have been making the highest quality aloe vera products since 1971. When you drink their aloe daily, you can not only support your gut health, but it is clinically proven to boost your immune system, reduce toxins that prohibit nutrient absorption, increase your daily supplement absorption, and improve antioxidant support. Lily of the Desert's aloe juice and gels are the perfect addition to your favorite smoothie, or you can mix it with another juice. The aloe will help boost the nutrient absorption of those good-for-you ingredients. We love that they grow the aloe organically and from fields to bottle and oversee all processing and manufacturing to help maintain quality and lower costs. They offer a full range of products, including USDA organic aloe juices and gels, condition-specific herbal formulas, and of course, aloe topicals for your glowing skin. Check them out at your favorite local health food store or on Amazon, or you can visit lilyofthedesert.com to learn more. So as I'm getting older, I'm in my mid-50s now, I've been thinking about things like dementia. And I notice a lot of people focus on the body and not so much on the brain. This book that I'm talking about today, and I'm super excited, Dementia Prevention, Using Your Head to Save Your Brain, is phenomenal. And I'm being joined now by Dr. Mitchell Kleonsky. He and his wonderful wife, Dr. Emily Kleonsky, wrote this fantastic book together. Dr. Kleonsky, welcome to Health Power pleasure to be here. So nice to have you on. In part one, in Nature and Origin of Dementia, you write, dementia prevention is similar to fire prevention. You can change the odds of having a fire, but nobody can promise you that it will never occur. Define dementia for us and then expand on that fire analogy. Dementia is a progressive neurological decline. So it's a brain disease in which there are changes both inside and on the surface of the brain. So inside the brain, there is a breakdown of the connectivity. Outside the brain, there is a shrinkage in many cases and reduction in the number of brain cells that are in these little curves and valleys and peaks called sulci and gyri. In any case, what you're seeing is that people lose to a greater extent than normal the ability to pay attention, specifically to remember new information, to be able to solve problems, to function, to care for themselves. So we are seeing that while it's sort of normal to lose a half step in speed as we get older, although not everybody does this, there is this concept called super agers in which people continue to basically think like they're 40 when they're 80, yeah. Most people and many people begin to find it's harder for them to find words. It's harder for them to remember things and they start to slow down in their processing speed. This is an acceleration of that. This is an abnormal loss of ability to think and reason. And so that's why it becomes the demental ability, the dementia. Yes. And like I mentioned with that fire analogy, We can do a lot of things to prevent it, but we can't 100% guarantee it. Not at all. But you still want to do these things, though, anyway, because they're good for you overall. And even if you have a genetic loading for dementia, even if you have this thing called the APOE4 allele, which is increasing your chances of Alzheimer's type dementia, and we can talk a little bit about there's different types of dementia, but 
even if you have that, your lifestyle, managing your health will make a difference in your overall ability to either prolong good thinking or avoid losing it altogether. So it's you're really stacking the odds in your favor as opposed to just letting things happen willy-nilly. Yeah, I think my husband's going to be a super ager. I mean, he does everything in the book. Wonderful. I might be an almost super ager. I'm trying. At any rate, you know, you hear a lot of people using both words interchangeably, but there is a difference between dementia and Alzheimer's. If you can touch on that for us. Probably the number one question when we, when Emily and I do a talk before a corporate group or a local senior center, no matter where we do it, the first question we usually get is, well, what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? And in fact, I've had people clinically where I've told them, well, you have a mild form of dementia. And they say, thank goodness it's not Alzheimer's. And I tell them, well, it could be. See, Alzheimer's to dementia is sort of like a Ford is a type of a car. There are a variety of cars. All of them have different labels to them because they're different manufacturers. Well, Alzheimer's is a form of dementia. Because of the fame of the Alzheimer's Association and their reach, I think it's probably gotten a bit more press than the other forms of dementia. Until recently, when Bruce Willis was diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia, which is a very different kind of thing, but it's still one of the dementias. For many people, it's the vascular problems that they're having, dealing with blood pressure, dealing with diabetes dealing with sleep apnea that inflame parts of their circulatory system that cause this, what we used to call hardening of the arteries. But it is often in combination with Alzheimer's disease. So there's this vascular dementia and Alzheimer's disease that oftentimes we'll see coexisting. You can also get dementia from Parkinson's disease. About 25 to 33% of the people with Parkinson's will develop dementia, oftentimes becoming what's called Lewy body disease. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. And then there's the dementias come from drinking too much alcohol, the dementias that come from people who hit their heads too many times, either as a result of sports or occupation or simply trauma. There's a variety of things. And in fact, uh, as we lay out, there's one of the tables in there that shows hundreds of different things that could potentially cause dementia, some of which are reversible and others which are preventable. Yeah. And that's what's so fascinating in the book. And I'm really glad that you mentioned trauma. You talk about genetics and early life factors, limited education, early stress, TBI, which, you know, you mentioned the brain and adolescent trauma. I talk a lot on the show. It seems to come up a lot about ACEs, adverse childhood events. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I think that makes a difference too. So I would just be curious of your take on that. The stress that comes from poor situations growing up, you know, the problems not knowing who's going to be there when you come home from school, the stress of having multiple people in and out of the family, the uh, living in poverty, uh, not having adequate food, uh, living in places that are close to environmental pollution, all are likely to have some later life adverse effects, if not directly on your dementia, then on your health and your habits, which indirectly will cause you to have 
a different risk of dementia. So if you're, for example, not getting adequate nutrition as a young child or even prenatally, you're starting off behind everybody else in the race. But then you're having this that gets in the way of your ability to concentrate at school. You're getting in the way of your ability to feel comfortable in your own skin, to deal with stress. All of those kinds of things may lead you to eating poor foods, drinking excessively, using drugs, doing things that are risky, and dropping out of school early. So you see this accumulate. That's why it becomes so interesting. You know, people say, can you tell us the one thing that we can do to prevent dementia? And right. I said, to them, you know, if there was one thing, <laughs> we wouldn't have spent 270 pages writing a book. We just said, you know, could have done that on a page and a half. <laughs> the dementia to prevention, in our view, is a thing. It's just not one thing. And so all those you know, clickbait kinds of uh, things you see on the internet, they lead you, if I just eat these particular foods, take this over-the-counter pill, do this exercise at this time of the day in this way, then I'm going to make a significant impact. And there just aren't those single things. We would have fixed it years ago if there were. Right. There's a lot of things that you need to do and you go through all of them in the book. And before we get to those, in part two and dementia risk model, we just mentioned the genetic and early life factors. You talk about uh, women and dementia and you talk about hormones and a decrease in estrogen. Yes. Talk to us a little bit about this. So there's a couple of reasons why you see more women in a dementia clinic than men. Partly it's due to the fact that women outlive men. Men die younger. And so because dementia is related to age in many cases, our risk goes up as we get older. At age 65, we have about a 10% risk. At age 75, we have about a 20% risk. At age 85, that doubles again to about a 40% risk. So there's an age relationship. But the other reason is that before menopause or perimenopause, as Emily always talks about it, the area, the time around, because this isn't just one day you wake up and you're menopausal. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> you know that very well. So currently, you know, people think about that as something in your 50s. Uh, currently, the statistics tell us that at age 42, we have an increased risk. That's the onset of perimenopause for many women. So the estrogen is protective of your brain when you're young. The estrogen deficiency that you have after menopause puts you at the same, if not greater, risk than men. The other thing that's associated with this, too, is because women don't have you know, estrogen, they become more likely to have osteoporosis, problems with their bone density as they get older. And because we know that falls, fractures, things like that will accelerate any problem with your brain getting worse it becomes a bigger issue because people who are old tend to fall and particularly women who are old tend to break when they fall. So that sets off this whole downward kind of cycle. So we get into all this, what, what do we do to prevent loss of balance? What do we do to prevent the bone density from becoming weaker? And that's where the estrogen again fits in. So at 48, I had a total hysterectomy. I had these huge fibroids and my mother died of ovarian cancer at 57. So I thought, just take everything out just to be safe, even though I tested negative the, for the BRCA. At any rate, uh, I didn't want to just hit the wall of menopause head on, even though I was already having perimenopausal symptoms. So I got on uh, hormones and I'm so glad that I did. 
And I know that there's a lot of differences in the way people feel about this, but I think talking about it in, in regards to dementia is something that women should be made aware of. No one ever said anything about that to me. And I think that the recent research, and Emily's a better uh, reference for this than I am, but I'm pretty sure that the recent evidence suggests that if you start the hormones early, you're not going to be increasing your risk for problems like cancer later on, and that you're going to maintain your cognitive health. But if you wait, and then five, 10 years later, try to go back on hormones, things don't work so well. Yes. Let's jump to midlife medical conditions that affect dementia risk. You've got cerebral cardiovascular diseases, type 2 diabetes, and obesity. Touch a little bit on each of these. Well, the circulatory system is really important for getting oxygen and nutrients to our brain. And so one of the things that happens is when we are not taking good care of our cardiovascular system, our heart and all of the arteries and capillaries that come from the arteries, the ends of those little branchy things, the capillaries begin to break down and red blood cells cannot carry oxygen and nutrients to the very tips of them inside our brain. So the connectivity of our brain suffers. And this could happen from a variety of problems which are all somewhat related to lifestyle. So hypertension, high blood pressure, and diabetes, when you have elevated blood sugar or resistance to insulin, are both really important in terms of circulation. We don't think about diabetes as a circulatory problem, but it actually is. It has to do with the inflammation of the circulation. The other piece that goes with this, and we sort of break off a little bit, is sleep apnea, where not enough air is getting down your lungs, so not enough oxygen molecules are able to attach to those red blood cells. When people have oftentimes these three things going on all at the same time, so they've got high blood pressure, and with it very often high levels of triglycerides, when they're also having, uh, they may be smoking at the same time, we still see people smoking these days, and from a you know, dementia risk, we're not so much interested in cancer for that. We're really interested in what happens to your blood pressure and how the blood vessels get narrow as a result of the smoking. But we have that as well as the, the sugar levels getting imbalanced and people oftentimes are obese. And this is, I call this the third rail of health because these days it's all tied up with a lot of body image and uh, people's feelings of shame and who's responsible. Is it a biological condition? Is it a moral kind of thing? And, and from my perspective and our perspective, it's not so important. The question is, is your body size consistent with how your body was designed? Mm -hmm. Okay. Because if it isn't, it's like overloading your car. It's not going to run very well. You have to have a body that's consistent with how it was designed. For some people, they've got a larger frame that can carry more weight. Other people are shorter. So for them, you can't weigh as much as somebody who's a foot taller than you and expect your body to work the same way. It just doesn't work that way. So then people oftentimes who are obese either are obese partly because they don't exercise or 
They don't exercise because they're obese and they're fatigued all the time and they don't have the energy and they get out of breath easily and they just don't want to do it. So you have really a circular kind of system, all of it moving in the direction either of hurting your brain or if you can turn it around, protecting your brain. So that's why we focus. And those are mostly things where, as I say, the chickens come home to roost in midlife. You can get away with many of those indiscretions. You can overeat. You can you know, lay around on the couch and not do too much oftentimes in your youth without it being terribly harmful to you. Although certainly obesity is a problem in adolescence that is going to be a much bigger problem than it ever was before. But Oftentimes, the real effects of this are cumulative. We start seeing them in your 40s and 50s. And if you deal with them then, you're going to have a much better brain when you're 70 or 80. And if you don't deal with them, you're going to have a lot of problems. Jump into nutrition. You, you talk about metabolic and vitamin deficiencies. You say you want to focus on a few vitamins in the B family and vitamin D and iron deficiency. And I want people to get the book. So I'm just like touching on these. What I really want to talk about here that I thought was really interesting is the medications did a little bit. For example, I have overactive bladder. I was blessed to be able to get something called the Exonix device, which they actually surgically put inside of you. And it's a device that attaches to the right nerves in your sacrum, and it controls the messages between your bladder and your brain. And it's been a godsend. Now, before they do that, they will put you on AOB medication which I tried and all it did was make me constipated. It didn't change anything. And I really pushed to get this because I don't like, they don't, the medications didn't work. I don't like taking medications if I don't have to. And then I read in your book that those aren't good for dementia. I was like, what? <laughs> That's a long story. Sorry. But anyway. That's okay. It's a complicated pattern. Now, there are several reasons why people are put on overactive bladder medications. Sometimes it's due to neurogenesis. So they have uh, something like multiple sclerosis and the signals that go to their bladder just aren't working properly. Other times, more commonly, it's because of childbirth that uh, women particularly have weaker you know, bladder control. So there's a muscle at the top of your bladder and a muscle at the bottom of your bladder. One opens to let the urine in, the other one controls it from going out and they work in synergy when you urinate. Uh, well, the so as we get older, there's a higher frequency of people losing muscle tone in those two muscles. The medications that they typically put you on increase the muscle tone there, but they do this by drying out. And I mean, the side effects of these are that they are anticholinergic. They reduce the levels of a chemical throughout our body and also very prominently in our brain called acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is the chemical that we're trying to support with any of the existing, well, actually not all of them, but three out of the four existing memory medications. So we're trying to keep those levels up. The problem is that in hopes of tightening your bladder, we're driving down, we are anticholinergic in the medications that are prescribed for your bladder. They also dry out your throat and your nose. So these same medications are used in a little different formulation for allergies. They also can make you sleepy. 
So there's a whole class of medications that are the PMs, you know, the Advil PMs, the Tylenol PMs, all of those things that are to make you drowsy while you fall asleep. Then there are the medications for your bladder where it may be that you've got a bladder that doesn't hold urine so well, or one of the side effects of having sleep apnea can be that you urinate frequently during the night caused by lack of oxygen, not caused by having a bad bladder. In any case, you get these medications and they work on all of the different, what they call muscarinic receptor sites. These are controlling your bladder. They're also making you sleepy and they're also in your brain affecting how you think. Good news is there's actually two different overactive bladder medications that don't impact your brain nearly as much as the others. So when we see people, we don't have to say to them, either you're going to be peeing everywhere without control, <laughs> or you're going to be thinking. We say, no, no, I think we can achieve both goals, but we need to have your doctor switch you from this medication to that. So taking an inventory of what you're taking is important. That's why we include a link in our book to a website that allows you to put in all of your medications. It's not our website. It's, it's by a physician in England who developed this, and it's an anticholinergic burden scale. Ah, okay. And what it allows you to do is put in each of your medications, and you can see how anticholinergic they are. Because it's not just the sleep meds. It's not just the bladder meds. There may be taking something for other reasons, either heart reasons or depression things like that that can also, or anxiety that can affect your overall level of anticholinergic burden. So that's why it's a, it's a more complicated answer than just a single drug. Right. It's really interesting. I would recommend anyone having trouble though, just Google axonics. It's 94% effective. And thank God I was in that 94%. Let's talk about alcohol mm -hmm. because you were talking about studies showing that moderate, what's considered moderate alcohol consumption is still a problem. It's an interesting controversy because Originally, the research suggested that for women, a drink a day was safe, maybe even optimal, more than not drinking at all. And that for men, one to two drinks a day, we're talking here about standard drinks. So let me explain what that is. In terms of wine, that's a four to five ounce glass of wine. If it's beer, it's 12 to 16 ounces of a standard beer. And by the way, light beer has almost the same alcoholic content as regular beer. Craft beers are oftentimes double the alcohol content of traditional mass-produced beers. So you got to look at what the label tells you. From a distilled beverage kind of distilled spirit, you know, rum, uh, whiskey, rye, things like that, perspective, we're now talking about a standard shot. So we're, so, so that was the, the, the thinking uh, initially, and everyone sort of said, okay, well, that's pretty good. You know, what we really want to avoid is binge drinking, no more than five drinks, really no more than three or four drinks at a time. That's really important because that really does do damage to your brain. And then came out some studies looking at the MRI results of people who drank at all versus people who didn't drink at all. And what they found was brain size and configuration in people who didn't drink was actually better 
than the people who drank even at the limits that were considered safe. So, but but this this is one of these fields in flux, and what you'll see is the the pendulum swinging both ways. So, where we come down on this at the end, and, and you know, uh, I, I'm not adverse to uh, having a cocktail, so it's uh, I'm not from coming at this from a teetotaler perspective. The I really don't want people with any real cognitive impairment to be drinking. So, if you already have dementia, even if it's mild. Even if you have a precursor state, which is mild cognitive impairment, you probably would be better off not drinking. However, if you are not really exhibiting current problems and you're doing well in other areas, I think probably the old guidelines of a drink per night or for a woman or up to two for men are probably okay. But you have to work on the other things as well. Every year in my town, there's this fantastic crafts in the park. It's always the day before Mother's Day, so it's fun to go and shop and get lots of cool stuff. At any rate, I came across One Earth Body Care, and it changed my life. Now, you may think I'm being hyperbolic, but I'm not. I am extraordinarily smelly, and I have tried every natural deodorant under the sun. Nothing has worked except for their fantastic natural deodorant. They have a variety of scents. They are non-greasy, cream-based formula, baking soda-free. Magnesium hydroxide keeps odor at bay, and let me tell you, it sure does. Organic and gentle, and they have wonderful enchanting essential oil aromas. My favorite is vanilla rose, there's vanilla spice, lavender lime, lemongrass, cedar, sage. They also have wonderful shampoo bars, changed my daughter's life. Her hair looks amazing and conditioner bars. They have wonderful salves for dry skin and so much more. So please check them out at oneearthbodycare.com. Once you have had a wonderful dog, a life without one is a life diminished. That's a quote by author Dean Coots, and I couldn't agree more. I want my wonderful dogs to live as long as possible, and what they eat plays a huge role in their health and longevity. Kibble is full of seed oils that wreak havoc on our dog's health. They damage their microbiome, which affects digestion, oral health, their skin and coat, and more. And that's why I feed my dog Benji Yumwoof. Their air-dried food is GMO-free and has an inflammation-reducing recipe with omega-3 and coconut oil. It's all the benefits of fresh food without the fridge, carbs, fillers, seed oils, and other inflammatory ingredients you see in other brands. Yum Woof obsessively crafted a healthy, low-carb food with humanely raised USDA meat, eggs, and other non-GMO superfoods that my dog loves. Try the number one air-dried dog food for gut health for 50% off a trial of Yum Woof. That's 50% off a trial of Yum Woof. Go to www.yumwoof.com. That's www.yumwoof.com. You and your dog will be so glad you did. Does your family include a dog or a cat? Would you like to be better educated on how to advocate for their health naturally? Then why not check out all of the amazing resources on naturallyhealthypets.com? Dr. Judy Morgan is a trusted advisor and a regular guest here on the Dog Eared Podcast. She has over 38 years experience as an integrative veterinarian, acupuncturist, chiropractor, food therapist, author, speaker, podcast host, and owner of Dr. Judy Morgan's 
naturally healthy pets. Dr. Judy's goal is to change the lives of pets by educating and empowering pet parents just like you in the use of natural healing therapies and minimizing the use of chemicals, vaccinations, and poor quality processed food. Head on over to naturallyhealthypets.com where you'll discover healthy product recommendations, comprehensive courses, the Naturally Healthy Pets podcast, informative blogs, upcoming events, and so much more. Again, that's naturallyhealthypets.com, the place to learn how to give your pet the vibrant life that they deserve. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what about uh, marijuana if you're not smoking it, but you're taking it as an edible? For example, (laughs) uh, sometimes I take them for relaxation. I have some, actually, my psychologist recommended it. Sometimes I take them for fun. I don't drive, obviously. I stay home. I don't do it that often, but I do enjoy it. This is really a fascinating question because, number one, the literature on this is really very limited because for years, nobody in this country was allowed to do research on it. So there's this big gap. Secondly, there is marijuana and there is marijuana. Uh, I'm 72. So I went to school back in the 60s and the 70s. There's a lot of marijuana around. The analysis that's been done since then tells us, because we didn't think about that at this point. It was the only question of, you know, was it good or was it not good? <laughs> Were there seeds in it or not? <laughs> you, know, you didn't want the seeds because they'd explode inside of your joint. <laughs> but back then, <laughs> the question became, you know, was it really, what's the strength of this? It turns out that the marijuana of old was about 4% THC. Now the dispensary distributed marijuana starts at 18% THC, goes up to 30% THC. And the brains of many of us who were doing it back then are now 50 years older than they were. So when you look at marijuana that's six to seven times stronger and brains that are 50 times, 50 years older, the math doesn't work so well. Right. Okay. There's a real problem with children and adolescents having marijuana exposure. We know that during those developmental ages, and uh, Emily will tell you that goes up to about age 22 or 23 for women. And for men, maybe four or five years later, for some of us, maybe never at all, <laughs> that our brains myelinate fully developed. But uh, it's really, you know, does do make changes in brain circuitry. Uh, we know that in the six hours after using marijuana, you think slower and you're less efficient. So whenever I'm testing somebody, I always ask them if they are using marijuana and when was the last time they used it. If they told me that morning, I send them home. <laughs> I do it. I reschedule yeah, the no, testing. Yeah, no, that makes sense. They're going to test poorly and they're high. I mean, they may say, well, I got it because I, I, I didn't really smoke it. You know, I, I ate it. I said, it doesn't matter. It gets to your, into your brain one way or the other. So there's a lot of variables here. Uh, from Basically, from an advice perspective, what I say to people is, if you're worried about your cognition and you're not thinking, you're having more word-finding problems, you're not concentrating as well, it's harder for you to learn new things on your job, and you're using marijuana on a nightly basis in whatever form you're using it, and whatever strain you say is better 
because it's really a lot of folklore there. Oh, you know, this is sativa. It's really okay. Oh, this is indica. It does this or that. Who are you relying on? You're relying on the guy who's standing behind, or the girl standing behind the counter telling you, oh, this is for this. I don't know what degree they have, and I don't know what research they're basing it on. It's like, oh, for me, this is what it does is really, or for the people I know, they say this is what it right. does. So getting back to the overall point, I suggest they do an experiment. The experiment is, don't use it for anywhere from three to four weeks. See what your thinking is like. What you may discover, as some of my patients have discovered, is that the word-finding problems go away. Their thinking increases, and they're more like their old self. The long-term effects, hard to say at this point, but... The question is, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, the, the, the old Dirty Harry, Clint Eastwood question. You know, how lucky are you feeling? Right. Well, you know, it's interesting what you said about the dispensaries and the people giving advice. So I interviewed a doctor on the show, Harvard-trained doctor, wonderful guy. His whole practice is medical marijuana for like, you know, variety of uses. And he said, see your doctor who actually specializes in it. Let's jump into, but now I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do it for a while. Okay, let, let's jump into. You know, you'll do the experiment. You'll okay, see. I'll do the experiment. I mean, I only do it like once a month anyway. So and, you know, for you at, at that frequency and for people doing it socially, I, I, it's hard to make a case it's going to have any really problems okay. if you're using it infrequently and socially. I'm talking about the people who use one every night because they can't fall asleep otherwise. We're using it instead of a Valium or instead of a lorazepam because they're anxious. Or for the people who think that it gives them mental clarity. Makes you know, me laugh. Years ago, we remember having those ideas at parties <laughs> that were just the best ideas ever. And then the next day we'd say, oh, my God, was that stupid? <laughs> I love that. All right. Now, sensory and emotional factors that amplify dementia risk. You've got hearing loss, vision loss. Hearing is particularly important. You know, uh, vision most people are aware of because it interferes when you can't see with doing all kinds of different things. But hearing loss, it for most people, is a subtle loss. It's not something that they wake up deaf one morning. In fact, it's so subtle that they oftentimes do not even experience themselves as having it. They just consider everyone else to be mumbling. Uh, why don't you speak up? You know, it's, or I'm only having problems when I'm in a, a restaurant. And in fact, there is a sort of normal variant that does happen in those kinds of, of noisy background situations. But the uh, getting your hearing tested is really the key. And it's a lot easier now because they've deregulated hearing aids. You don't have to go to an audiologist. There's even some big box stores that have very nice audiology departments in them. And because of their discount buying power, they sell excellent hearing aids at very good prices. The hearing aids these days are oftentimes so small that you don't even know that you're someone's wearing them, which used to be the big resistance that I would run into when I would ask people to get their hearing tested, is they didn't want to look old by having something that other people could see. And I'd say to them, do you know what really makes you look old? And they'd say, what? And I say, no, you really know what really makes you feel old or look old and say, what? I say, that. That's what really makes you seem old. It's not the hearing aid. It's the fact that you keep asking people to repeat themselves. But here's the research. And this is all new stuff. This is stuff over the last couple of years. Turns out that people with even subtle hearing loss don't think well. 
and don't remember well. It's actually a cause for dementia that is preventable, reversible. So, so background noises are like something like, like with a com- your computer pings uh, or cell tower it, with your cell phone gets you know, pinged to say where it is and what's going on. There's this ongoing stimulation process that helps to enrich that part of your brain. The most recent research looks at something called functional MRI scans. And here we find that there is a network called the, one of the resting networks in our brain. This one's called the salience network. It tells us if something is important or not important. Should I pay attention or not pay attention? And that gets diminished when people have hearing loss. The most important finding, I think, is that if people get hearing aids and wear them, their, te- their test scores improve when we test them. So it looks like they're getting smarter and more capable, and they actually are. But the other thing that's really cool about it is that it's a dose-related phenomenon. In other words, if you get hearing aids, don't treat them like the crown jewels. Don't bring them out just for special occasions. Put them in in the morning, wear them till you go to bed. You want that background noise. You want all those things that are going on, even though you may be living by yourself. Yeah, I think that's so important. Loneliness right now, the Surgeon General just came out and said it's an epidemic. And I thought you gave some great advice in the book, as well as talking about being on vacation in Florida. And there was an elderly man bagging your groceries and he wanted to take him to your car. And you're like, no, 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 it's fine. He's like, no, this makes me happy. And he told you that he fully retired, but he didn't like it. And now he got this part-time job bagging groceries and he's happy. And I think finding something to keep you busy is so important. I think so too. And, you know, nobody prepares us for retirement. There's no retirement class. You don't learn it in college. It's not something that you get in other places. And, you know, I was thinking maybe I would just run online retirement groups for people who are planning to retire and talking about ideas. Because so many of the people I see, I ask this question when they're either, you know, about to retire or, or looking ahead. And they haven't really, they've planned everything else but they haven't planned what they're going to do. And for some of them, it's such a change that, uh, you know, and for some of it's isolating because their workplace was their social life. There are people who can't wait to go out to lunch with their former coworkers because they miss them so badly and they miss the interaction. Uh, we were doing a book signing a couple nights ago and the woman who was running the events for this uh, small bookshop, this was her retirement job. She works about three, four hours a day, and she does all of the evening events there. And she had worked for a big corporation doing uh, large presentations for these uh, major corporations. And she retired, and she realized after a short period of time that she could only learn so many different recipes and so many different ways to bake. And her garden was only going to go for so much. And she needed something else. And this, she says, is great. She gets to meet all kinds of interesting people. There's authors who come through. There's people in the community that have become her friends. And it, it's sort of, it's this balance that she really wants to achieve. And it keeps her thinking. 
And I think that's the real point. You want to be doing something that uses different parts of your brain, that allows you to either solve problems or be exposed to different ideas or learn new things, because this is adaptation is, is the key to success in living. If you don't change over the course of your life and meet the new challenges, essentially you're going to die. Uh, you need to constantly be reinventing yourself in some way. So it can be an adventure. Right. You're so right. You know, I've been in health media for almost 25 years. And in January of this year, 2023, I started a podcast about dogs. It's it's authors who write books about dogs. So I get to read a lot and I get to talk about my favorite thing in life, which is dogs. I think that's wonderful. And, you know, uh, we, we are really a dog positive Yay. family here. In fact, uh, for most of his 12 years of life, our Labradoodle, mm. whose name is Friday, Aww. who virtually uh, developed a, a cancer, we had to put him oh, down. Coincidentally, so the day that our our book was launched, and he died the same day. So it was oh, one of the most bittersweet experiences. But Friday was partially human. He came to work every day. So he'd be down at my wife's part of our office suite at some points and in my part of the office suite at other points. He would greet patients. He had this uncanny ability to sense who was having a problem, who was frightened, who was sad. He'd go and sit by their side and they would pet him. Uh, when they, a couple of years uh, ago, there was a woman who came out to do a a piece on me from one of the local newspapers on neuropsychological testing, which is what I do. And she became really enamored with Friday. And I said, you know, I know a couple other doctors that have dogs in their offices. You got to do a whole piece on docs with dogs because it's, it really it makes the difference when people come in and it's like, oh my goodness, I was so scared this was going to be a scary place to go. And you've got this dog and, you know, certain dogs are just so calming and so friendly. And so uh, we actually have a new standard poodle oh. now who's only 10 months old, who is like Friday with ADHD. <laughs> He's <laughs> loves people, but he also can smother you with affection. He's not quite as as, as calm and reserved. He's, he's learning how to be in the office. So he's working his way up. Oh, that's great. And you know, I know it might be hard for an older person to have a dog. Let's say they're in assisted living or a nursing home, obviously. But that's why I think it's so important if you can have a dog, because that's going to help you with loneliness. That's going to help you with exercise. That's going to help you meet new people. You go to a dog park. You could, you know, join a group. The other thing that's so great is I've interviewed, uh, and I'm interviewing another one soon on Dog Eared, uh, when people who get their dogs to be therapy dogs and go into those places. That makes a big difference, too. Well, they say if you want a friend, buy a dog. Now, part three, <laughs> where you stand and what you can do about it. Okay, so I did your dementia prevention checklist. I'm doing really well, except I don't know my homocysteine level, my methylmalonic acid level, and my vitamin D. So I'll get those checked out. And what I love about this last part of the book as well, and especially as someone who you know studied public health, is change is really hard. And you talk about that. You talk about 10 step process to make an important change. And you, you know, again, I think to have a guide that not only tells you this is what can happen, how do we prevent it, 
we can't prevent it. You know, we can't guarantee just like fire, like in the beginning, but here are things that could definitely be helpful and that you should be doing them anyway. So I'm going to get those lab tests done and I'll have to get back in touch with you. And, but you'd also, you also Great. talk about you know, checking that cardiovascular, your breathing issues, your habit and your lifestyle practice, your social, emotional, and cognitive factors and your sensory impairments. Now, was there anything that we didn't touch on today that you were hoping we would before we wrap up? And you're always welcome here. This has been such a fantastic conversation. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm sure I'd love to come back and talk. Maybe I'll bring Emily along this time. That would be great. Yeah, she, she was unable to, to join us today. I, I think there's, there's a lot of other things in the book. I, I don't want to really spoil it. Uh, not that I can because it takes a long time. <laughs> I think the one thing I, I want to emphasize is that it's important for people to figure out where do I want to be with my brain? And how do I begin making some small changes today that I can build upon? I don't want this to be something where someone tries to do everything at once because that's doomed for failure. And we're really into success. We want people, you know, the, the, the data is, and I didn't talk about this before, but the data is that one out of every two cases of dementia is preventable. Wow. That is huge. If I told you that we could cure one out of two cases of dementia, I would not have time to talk with you because we would be so busy giving whatever medication or treatment or whatever it is. People would be lined up for miles. They would pay whatever it took to do this. In the same way that when there's a fire in an apartment building and there's eight fire trucks and there's five TV stations following it, it really gets a lot of attention. But prevention not so much. Move the candle away from the drapes and the fire doesn't happen. Nobody notices. Prevention suffers from the same lack of attention. So the more that we can draw attention to the fact that these are preventable factors, that for the, you know, for, for the cost of one year of treatment, which even if the newest drugs, it's going to be like $26,000 for the cost of one year of being in assisted living, which for many people is in the neighborhood of $70,000. You could prevent this by borrowing or buying a book and learning and applying these things. What an investment in your future. How cheap is that compared to the outcome for you? You are so right. Again, Dr. Mitchell Klinowski, Dementia Prevention, Using Your Head to Save Your Brain. Yes, I would love to have you and bring Dr. Emily. Tell us all the ways we can find you and your fantastic book. Well, the website is braindoc.com, B-R-A-I-N-D-O-C.com. Social media, we're at two brain docs, number two brain docs, frankly, because someone else had brain doc before us. <laughs> that happens. Uh, the book itself is available through many bookstores. Uh, it's online with Amazon and Barnes and Noble. You can get through Johns Hopkins, who is our publisher. Uh, great press, great academic press, very scientifically oriented. Uh, it's also on Kindle and on iPad, and you can also now get an Audible uh, narrated by a very nice, very talented actor by the name of Nan McNamara. And frankly, I heard the preview to it when she first uh, we first had it come out. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And I said, you wrote it. <laughs> 
better than when we wrote it. It was really good. Everybody, please keep coming back to Health Power. Keep rating, reviewing, subscribing, and check out Dog Eared with Lisa Davis. And you can find me online at Lisa Davis MPH. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you and we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.